Well, how exciting. It is so good to be here. We are going to start this morning our series on the book of Matthew. And this, this week will be a little different than normal. We're not going to go through a specific passage. This morning we are going to do an overview of the book of Matthew. And, and mainly I want to talk about why are we going to study the book of Matthew. So that's kind of the questions that we're going to answer this morning. And I just want to start by reading Philippians chapter 3, verse 7 and 8. This is what the Apostle Paul says. He says, But whatsoever things were gained to me, these I have counted as loss for Christ. Yet indeed, I count all things loss for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish that I may gain Christ. Our our series is entitled, This is Jesus. And it is so critically important that you and I know who Jesus is because he's the one that we put our faith in for salvation. We need to love and obey Jesus. God has called us to be like him. So we need to know who he is. Jesus is our holy, righteous God, the one that we can run to for compassion, for forgiveness, for care, for restoration, And when you think about spiritual truth and when you think about the truth about Jesus, spiritual truth is not the kind of thing that anybody can discover on their own. Do you have any idea how many religions came about because some person just sat down and thought about things and wrote a book and then handed it out and next thing you know there's like whole religions based on what a person came up with. I mean, it's unbelievable that people stake their eternal destiny on a single person's religious thoughts. You know, spiritual truth is not something that we can come to on our own. Now, the Bible does tell us in Romans 1.18 that God has communicated his attributes in creation and that we see God in creation. In Romans chapter 2, verse 14 and 15, uh, Paul talks about how people who don't have the law instinctively do the law because God's written his law on their hearts. So it's not that God isn't working in our life. It's not that God doesn't speak to us in certain ways apart from Scripture. However, we're sinful people, and we pollute whatever we see. Whatever goes through the filter of our our human fallenness is polluted. And the only way that we can know truth is from God's Word, God revealing himself to us. And so when it comes to figuring out who Jesus really is, the only place we can get that information is in God's word. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1 says, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purifications for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Not only do you and I need to know Jesus personally, um, but we need to be able to communicate him. We need to be able to communicate who Jesus is, his attributes, 
who he is. We need to communicate that to each other. As, as, as believers, as brothers and sisters in Christ, we need to be able to teach and encourage each other about who Jesus really is. It's the single most important thing that you do as a parent is to communicate who Jesus is to your kids and their necessity of knowing him personally. And as a church, that's what we do to our community, right? We're here to communicate the real Jesus to a lost and a dying world. And so we're going to be studying the book of Matthew, and we're going to be doing that because the book of Matthew describes the historical Jesus communicating to us in an inspired way. And when we faithfully follow Jesus, when we faithfully listen to the things that he taught, then you and I will be like him. And that's our goal, isn't it? When people meet us, we want them to see Jesus. In fact, did you know that that's what the name Christian means? We call ourselves Christians, but a Christian is a little Christ. When a person meets you, they should see Jesus. They should understand his character. They should experience the love of God. They should experience God's truth through you. We are human representations of Christ on earth. That's not to say that we're God. But we have the Holy Spirit living inside of us, and we are to display the character of Jesus to a lost world. And so we're going to study Matthew for three reasons. The first one is because Matthew is the inspired word of God. And I hope that we all take that for granted, but I'm going to show you a few things about um, Matthew and the, the fact that it is the inspired word of God. We're going to study Matthew because it was written by the disciple Matthew. And when you learn a little bit about Matthew, which, by the way, there's very little known about Matthew, but when you learn about Matthew, I hope that, like me, you're like, I want to read what this man wrote. And we're going to study Matthew because you and I want to be like Jesus. Matthew was transformed by Christ And you and I want to be transformed by that same Jesus that transformed Matthew. So that's why we're going to study it. We're going to look at those three things. So here's the the first thing. We are going to study Matthew because it is the inerrant, inspired word of God. Now, one of the things that our culture does, and and you want to know who attacks the (coughs) excuse me, who attacks the inerrancy of Scripture most? It's actually not. Um, the unbelieving world. I think the Bible's discounted. But if you want to see the inspiration of Scripture attacked, go to religious institutions. The average person grows up in church learning that the Bible is God's word. They trust it. They realize that it's inerrant. And then people go away to college and seminary, and they learn all kinds of ideas about how the things we know about Scripture aren't really true. And you have all these religious leaders with all kinds of degrees next to their name attacking the inspiration of Scripture. And sometimes they do it in a way where they say, oh, no, it's faithful. Oh, no, we we believe it, but it has mistakes in it. And one of the things that I would say to you is that if you can't trust the Bible on earthly things about where a city was, how far it took a person to travel from point A to point B, if you can't trust the Bible on those logistical details, why would you trust it on spiritual things? And yet we have these religious experts that explain to us that the Bible has mistakes in it. 
Let me, and I'll just tell you, the Gospels is one of the main places that Scripture is attacked. In fact, these ideas are almost everywhere. You'll probably see them in study notes in your Bibles and all kinds of things. And we don't often recognize that, but I just want you to know everything that the Bible says is exactly true and exactly accurate. Matthew chapter 5, verse 18, Jesus says, For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass away from the law until all is accomplished. And so God is talking about the fact that he will bring all of his word to fruition, and he talks about the details, the parts of a Hebrew letter. Uh, he goes on in Matthew chapter 22, and this is just one example, and it's something, it's from the book of Matthew, so I wanted to read it to you, but there's this big debate, and the Pharisees are always questioning Jesus and trying to trap him, and one of the things that we see is Jesus never gets trapped. He answers questions when he wants to answer them, and then sometimes he traps them. Now, this is an interesting thing about Jesus. He always tells the truth, when the Pharisees are trying to figure out how to answer questions, they're always making a calculation. Well, if we say this, what will happen? If we say this, what will happen? They're not tied to the truth. They're tied to what is in their best interest. They're always calculating. They're always scheming where Jesus tells the truth. But there's one place where Jesus trips up the Pharisees, and so he asks them this question. They ask him something, trying to trap him, and he says, okay, you answer this question, and then I'll answer you. And this whole thing happens. But I want to just point out the big point here. Matthew twenty-two forty-two, Jesus says, what do you think about the Christ? So he's going to ask them about the Old Testament Messiah. What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? And they said to him, the son of David. That, by the way, is a big theme in the book of Matthew, Jesus being presented as the son of David. And then Jesus says to them this, how is it that David in the spirit calls him Lord, saying the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand and I will put your enemies under your feet. If David then calls him Lord, how is he his son? And so Jesus asks them this question that they can't figure out, and when we get to it, we'll deal with that whole story. But here's the thing that I want to point out to you. Do you notice what Jesus says about David's words? How is it then that David in the Spirit calls him Lord? Do you see what Jesus is saying there? He's saying King David is writing, but it's not just King David. It is God speaking through King David. King David says this in the spirit. So he takes what David says, and he makes it divine. And he basically says, it can't be wrong. It can't be an error. So this seeming contradiction, he's his Lord, but he's his son. Okay, that's impossible. But it's not a mistake because David says it in the Spirit. And what I want you all to know is that every single word written in the Bible was written in the Spirit. Um, this is what it says here. John 14, 25. We'll look at a couple things, but 
one of the things that people attack the Gospels with is they'll look at the way the Gospels are similar and the way that they're different. And they'll just say, man, they're so similar, they must have copied each other. Or they'll say they're different, so they're in error. One person took another person's story and they changed it. And, and people will say, okay, these, these gospel writers, they wrote so many years after the events actually happened. Now, any one of you describe something that happened 20 years ago. Can you describe it perfectly? Would you make a mistake? And without question, the Bible was written by real people. Their experiences, their personalities were expressed in the things that they wrote. But it's not just a human book. It is a supernatural book. And one of the things that we see here, if you'll look here in John, this is one of the things that John says to his disciples, that Jesus said to the disciples before he left. He says, these things I have spoken to you while I'm still with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things. Did the gospel writers occasionally have bad doctrine as they were writing scripture? D did any of the Bible writers ever have bad doctrine? No, the Holy Spirit will teach you all things. I was just reading something about the gospels and they were talking about the Old Testament's use or the New Testament's use of the Old Testament. And specifically, one writer was criticizing Matthew and just saying he totally took this Old Testament passage out of context. Context, context, context. Matthew messed it up. And a lot of people struggle when they look at the way Old Testament passages were used in the New Testament, and they feel like, well, man, they're kind of adding a meaning that wasn't really there. Well, you want to know what the truth is? The truth is that in our generation, people are careless about reading the Old Testament. And uh, there's this Old Testament professor at Masters, and I used to teach a class over there, and I would show up early sometimes because he would be going on and on about something in Psalms. Or, and I just, like, I'm just like, okay, this is a college professor. I graduated from college a long time ago, but this guy is so good. And one of the things that he did is he took all these controversial passages where they say that the New Testament misused the Old Testament. He picked, he picked the, the most controversial ones, and he actually worked through it and showed how if you read it casually, you don't see that that was actually the point that was being made in the Old Testament. But if you look at the big picture, you realize that the New Testament writers used the Old Testament exactly the way the Old Testament writers used it. And so it's our ignorance of the Old Testament scriptures that causes us to be confused, and we realize that they were much greater experts than we are. And so they didn't misuse anything. They never got anything wrong. And then he says this, not only will he teach you all things, but he will bring to your remembrance all that I have said. How could the gospel writers write so much later and yet there's so much agreement on the things that Jesus actually taught? It's because the Holy Spirit reminded them of what Jesus said. See, this, this, all these controversies and conflicts about the gospel messages and how they all work together and all these intelligent people figuring things out, they start by dismissing the basic things. Now, Scripture is not a human product. It is supernatural. 
And when you wonder why, well, why are they so similar? Well, maybe it's because they were all at the same place watching the same thing happen. And yet they're, they're different. Why are they different? Because God used each individual to communicate exactly his point. And so they're different, but they're the same. And they work perfectly together. Here's another one, and this is of all of Scripture, but look at this. It says, Peter describes the inspiration process in this way, how we got Scripture. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of men, but, ho- but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And so why are we studying the book of Matthew to learn about Jesus? Because the book of Matthew is inspired Now, I want to cite one example, and we're not going to get into all the details. We'll get into more details later, but this is the type of thing that people struggle with in the Gospels and as they try to put the Gospels together. There's a story in Matthew 20, Mark 10, and Luke 18, and when you read the story, it's Jesus healing some people. And so as he goes, when you listen to what the people say to Jesus, obviously it sounds so similar. It sounds like the same person. In one story, there's two people. In one story, there's one person. And when you think about that, is that a real contradiction if one gospel writer says there was two people and then another gospel writer points out only one of those people? That's not a contradiction, right? Like you could say, oh, yeah, today I met um, Jessica and Julianne at church. Somebody else could go and say, today I met Jessica at church. Are those a contradiction? No, you're pointing out one person. Somebody else is pointing out two. But here's one of the places where people have struggled. Because in this passage, Matthew and Mark say that Jesus ran into these people as he was going out of Jericho. But when you read Luke, he tells the story and he says, that as Jesus was drawing near to Jericho. So one says Jesus is on his way to Jericho. The other one says Jesus is leaving Jericho. Now I'll tell you how some people respond to that as they just go, that's a meaningless historical detail. Does it really matter if he was going to Jericho or if he was leaving Jericho? What's what's the difference? So yeah, it was wrong. One of the writers changed it for his purposes. But I just want you to know those kinds of details do matter. And there are a lot of struggles in the Gospels where you're like, okay, how does that work out? How does this work out? But the reality is that if you knew the information and if you looked into all the details, every story fits perfectly together. So in this example, how could Jesus be leaving Jericho and entering Jericho? And I'll tell you how. There were two cities of Jericho. One was the city of Jericho that um, Joshua marched around when the walls fell in. And that Jericho was destroyed, and there was like a little village there. And, there was, and Herod rebuilt Jericho two miles away. And so there were two Jerichos. Now, if you're talking to Jews, which is the main city of Jericho, do you think? Well, it's the original one. Well, it's kind of interesting because if you follow the geography, um, Matthew and and Mark would be talking to the Jews and Jesus would be leaving that Jericho. Now, the other group of folks um, that uh, Luke was writing to, 
The Greeks, who would they think of? They would probably think of the modern city. So then he would describe it as Jesus entering. So is that a contradiction? Is that wrong? Of course not. When all is known, there is no detail of the Gospels that does not fit perfectly together because every word of it is accurate. And so when we study the book of Matthew, you can have confidence that there's nothing made up, there's nothing changed, Everything that's stated in this book is 100% accurate. Okay, so Matthew is inspired. Let me just say a few things about the Gospels. Uh, There are four of them, Uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Matthew presents Jesus as the Messiah, the King of the Jews. Mark presents Jesus as a servant. And over and over it just says Jesus immediately did this. He immediately did that. Um, Luke presents Jesus as a man. He's a doctor. He talks about physical things and presents Jesus as a human. And John presents Jesus as God. Now, here's a point that I want to make. A man, a servant, the king, the Messiah, God, every single gospel writer presents Jesus as all of those things. You can go through any gospel and you can find things that testify to that. But each gospel writer had a different emphasis, though they included all of the details. Now, the synoptics are Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And if you were to lay out a chart of a timeline of what was happening when, Matthew, Mark, and Luke kind of describe the same events. There are different looks at the same event. Now, John is interesting because if you look at the Gospel of John, if you were to lay out the Gospels and you were to put gaps in all the synoptic Gospels for when nothing was given, John writes with the knowledge of the synoptics and he fills in these gaps. 90% of John's Gospel is only in John's Gospel. 10% of it follows the story of the other Gospels. Where Matthew, Matthew covers 94% of Mark And Matthew covers, I can't remember this statistic right now, but about 67% of what's in Luke. And so those are synoptics. They give a similar view. Um, Other quick facts about Matthew, and then we're going to move on. Matthew was known early and accepted by the church. One of the reasons I wanted to study Matthew is because 60% of Matthew are the words and teaching of Jesus. If you get your Bibles, if you have a red-letter Bible, and you just flip through the Gospel of Matthew, more than half of it is what Jesus actually taught and said. And it also includes his life. And so uh, what's the point of Matthew? Well, we see it in, we see it in, in, uh, in this verse right here, Matthew 1.1. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now you remember there are two, there, there are more than two, but there are two great covenants in the Old Testament, the Abrahamic covenant where God says to Abraham, I'm going to bless the world through your seed. That was talking about Jesus. And the Davidic covenant where God says to David, you will never lack a descendant on the throne. Your descendant will be the king forever. You know who that was talking about? Jesus. Matthew 1.1, Matthew points out that Jesus was the son of Abraham talked about. He was the son of David talked about. And next week, we'll talk about the genealogy. Okay, there are a lot of other details here about Matthew, but we will move on. Let's go to the second point here that is so important. 
We are going to study the book of Matthew because Matthew wrote it. Now, did you know that almost nothing is known of Matthew? I mean, is that a surprise to you? I'll bet if I said, if I just got a random group of people and I said, name the disciples, there's a lot of names that maybe people wouldn't come up with. But Matthew? I mean, everybody comes up with the name Matthew, which is amazing because almost nothing is known about Matthew. And I want to just... Uh, point out a lot of people argue about whether or not Matthew wrote Matthew I just want you to know he did early church tradition attributed the gospel of Matthew to Matthew and the gospel was accepted immediately that Matthew wrote it and here's the other thing unless Matthew wrote it nobody would have suggested that Matthew wrote Matthew Matthew is unknown in the gospels there's really one thing Very few things that we know about Matthew. Only one passage really that talks about him. His name shows up in the lists of disciples and his name shows up once when he's called by Jesus. And so so that's all we know about Matthew. So let me tell you a few things about Matthew. First of all, um, we're going to think a little bit about the calling of the disciples. Now this is a map. I apologize for tiny maps and things, but I love the geography of Israel And if you look way up there at the top, just below Syria, it says Capernaum. This is the city on the top of the Sea of Galilee where Jesus calls his disciples. Almost all of his disciples come from that area. Now, here's something unique about that area. That's not a really nice area. That's kind of a blue-collar worker area. So when Jesus was looking for disciples, he didn't go to Irvine. (laughs) He went to Hemet. So that's the hammet of Israel. You know, when you think about the Pharisees, they were so prideful. Uh, if you're from Hammet, I apologize. <laughs> Strike that from the tape. We're going to get a bunch of questions online, I think, this week. Um, Jesus, the, the Pharisees, they were prideful. They were arrogant. They prided themselves in their education, their high class. They looked down on people. And when Jesus was looking for disciples, he looked for ordinary people. Now, it says that um, after Jesus begins his ministry, it says that he moved to Capernaum. Now, here's a picture of Capernaum, and it says, Leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali. So this is the city where Jesus finds some of his disciples. What stands out to you about that city? Okay, first of all, it is tiny. I went to Israel a few years ago, show you a couple pictures that I took there, but Um, When I went there, that's one of the things that really stood out to me was how tiny this city was. You want to know something? The disciples, they grew up in the city. They knew each other. They were friends. And if you really thought about the relational dynamics amongst the disciples, it would be, it's shocking that Jesus chose these men. You hear about the conflicts and how they would get mad at each other and the things that would happen. And after learning some of the details, you're amazed that there weren't more conflicts. These people were so different. And so you have this small town by the sea, and Jesus calls four of his disciples there. It says in Matthew chapter 4, it says, While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who's called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets, and they followed him. Now what do you know of Peter? Peter was a loudmouth. 
He was the one who always answered first. You know that person that's always talking and speaking up? That was Peter. Now, how do you think his personality would have portrayed itself in a town that big? Everybody would have known about the loudmouth Peter um, and his brother Andrew. And then it goes on in verse 21, and it says, And going on from there, he saw two brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee with their father, mending their nets, and he called them. And immediately they left their boat and their father, and they followed him. And they went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. What do you know about James and John? Those were the guys with the temper problems, the sons of thunder. Now think about the personalities of these four guys in this small town. Man, they, they were the loud mouths and the people that were always angry, yelling at people. Something else about John that you, that you read is that John was a friend of the high priest, which means he had connections with religious people. He was related to somebody who was religious and powerful. And then this is the amazing thing is, did you know that this is also the city where Matthew came from? See, Matthew was a tax collector, and he was there collecting tax, taxes. And if you understand who a tax collector is, tax collectors were hated. In fact, the word for tax collector is also translated as publican. How many of you have ever heard about the publican? Publicans were the lowest form of people. Every time that publicans or tax gatherers are mentioned, they're mentioned as tax gatherers and sinners, tax gatherers and prostitutes. When, when you were talking about people that you would not associate with, tax gatherers and Gentiles. See, if you're a publican, you're not allowed in the temple. Now, Matthew in the other Gospels is named Levi, which probably means that he's a Levite. Matthew decided for money to become a tax collector, to be barred from ever attending the, 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 uh, the, the um, synagogue so he could never go study and learn. He gave that up. He was hated. Nobody would associate with him. And so who does Jesus pick to be his disciples? The loudmouth, the people with a temper, and the, people, the person that no one would speak to. That's who Jesus picked. Now, a few things about, um, first of all, this is for free. That's a, that's a picture of Peter's house. And in that house, Peter was married, and his wife's mom got really sick, and Jesus healed her. So that's his little house there. Amazing. And then this is something else that stood out to me about Capernaum. Um, this is a millstone. Remember when Jesus, he's using illustrations. One of the things that stood out to me when I went to the city is there are millstones everywhere. And remember when Jesus says you'd be better off to have a millstone tied around your neck and thrown into the sea. See, he, he talks about that. There's a sea, these fishermen who swim, and he says tie one of these things around your neck, throw it into the sea, be better off if that happened to you than you mislead one of these. Okay, that has nothing to do with this morning, but it just stood out to me that those were in, that those were there. Now let's look at the calling of Matthew. It says this, Jesus passed on from there in Matthew 9, and he saw a man called Matthew sitting at a tax booth, and he said to him, follow me, and he rose, and he followed him. Matthew was probably unbelievable to him. You think about being a person that nobody looks at, that nobody would talk to, that people avoid, 
that just and think about the pressure of living in a culture where you are hated by everybody. I, I was thinking about, do you know what one of the professions that has one of the highest suicide rates is? Okay, wait, what'd you say? A dentist. I've often thought about why would dentists, that's right, why would a dentist have a high suicide rate? And I was just thinking about how'd you like to have a profession where everybody's mad that they have to pay you and where all you do is deliver bad news and hurt people? <laughs> like, think about that. Um, oh, it's good to see you today. You need a crown. That'll be 700 bucks. And, and you need three fillings. And let me take some x-rays. It's like, who likes going to dentists? Little kids cry when they go to the dentist. And to have a profession, you know, I don't know, I think maybe that has something to do with the suicide rate, is just being in a profession where nobody's happy to see you. Magnify that by 100. That was Matthew's life. And Jesus, doing all these miracles in this little town, picks Matthew and says, follow me. What an amazing, transforming thing. And Matthew gives up all of his money. He gives up his career, and he follows Jesus. Now, when we think about these tax gatherers, just a, a point to make here, they're always mentioned in the Bible on the extreme. At least I'm not a tax gatherer. Even tax gatherers do this. When Jesus is trying to make a, 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 a point, he'll say the tax gatherers are going to heaven before you. Why? Because who's, who's the person definitely not going to heaven in the Pharisees' idea? It's the tax gatherers. Look at this. Jesus tells a story, and you've heard it. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, that's what tax gatherers were, unjust, adulterers, and then at the extreme, see, worse than, worse than this list, it says, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. And the tax gatherer, in contrast, is standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. That was Matthew. You know, it's interesting. Every time tax gatherers are mentioned, we have Zacchaeus, right? And Jesus goes to his house and forgives him. His life is transformed. We have in this example, the tax gatherer, Jesus says, is forgiven, but the Pharisee is not. And we have Matthew. Jesus is here to save the down and out. The people who, you know, think about um, blessed are the poor in spirit. Jesus came to save people who are down and out. The Matthews of this world. Nobody is despised. Jesus loves everyone. Now you think about the synagogues would never have let him in the door. But Jesus says, welcome, come, be my disciple. Think about what it means to be transformed into a person like Christ. Now this is the amazing thing about Matthew. Do you want to know how Matthew responds after Jesus calls him? Matthew gets all of his friends. He has a party. In fact, let's read it. And as Jesus was reclined at the table in the house, Matthew's house, many tax gatherers, tax collectors, and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? So Jesus calls Matthew, and Matthew goes and gets the only people who would have been his friends 
the other people who were rejected, and he invites them to meet Jesus. You know, as you read the story of Matthew, in the other lists of disciples, they all just list Matthew's name. When Matthew lists his own name, do you want to know what he does? He says, Matthew, the tax gatherer. Never forgets who he is. But Matthew was a humble man. When you write, he never talks about himself. He's never talked about. He's never mentioned. Even church history, um, it's very sketchy what happened in Matthew's life. The tradition is that he traveled and ministered to Jews, both in Judea and beyond, and that he was um, burned at the stake, that that's how he died. But that's so spotty. Nobody talks about Matthew. And Jesus takes, and God takes Matthew, this humble man that was rejected. He calls him into his service. He brings all of his friends. And God has him write the first gospel. Nobody will forget Matthew's name, though Matthew never made himself prominent. God made Matthew prominent. So when you think about Matthew, I want to learn from him. Now this is one of the, the other things about Matthew that I think is interesting. In the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew cites the Old Testament more than every other Gospel writer combined. Now that to me is interesting because he wasn't allowed in the synagogue. So how did he learn? And either he was studying and convicted in his heart and when Jesus called him, he responded, or Maybe he started fresh when Jesus called him and started studying Scripture. And by the time Matthew writes, he is an expert on the Old Testament and refers to it everywhere and cites it more than any other gospel writer. Matthew was a man of the Word. And here's the third reason that we're going to study the, the book of Matthew is because we want to be like Jesus. Just like Matthew, we want to be like Jesus and through the Gospel of Matthew, we get an accurate historical account of the things Jesus did. Now think about that. If you could take a trip with Jesus, wouldn't you do it? If Jesus was traveling somewhere and said, hey, you can come, I'll just tell you, um, if I found out that Jesus was preaching somewhere in town, I would not be here this morning. I'd be over there because I would want to hear Jesus. And isn't it amazing that through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, by the fact that God brought everything to mind, you and I can read the things that Jesus really did. We can hear the sermons that Jesus preached. And so we're going to study because we want to be like Jesus. Matthew says this in Matthew 10, 25, it is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebub, how much more well, they malign those of his household. So Matthew just says, I want to be like Jesus. And if they insult Jesus, they're going to insult me. But I want to be like Jesus. Luke says it this way, a disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone when he has been fully trained will be like his teacher. And it is my prayer that when people meet you and when people meet me, that they will say about us, what they said about Jesus' disciples. Look at Acts chapter 4, verse 13. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, they perceived that they were uneducated, common men. And they were astonished. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. You know, there's a lot of people who make up who Jesus is. 
lot of religions. In fact, did you know that everybody claims Jesus? Every religion claims Jesus? Um, Jesus is listed in the Quran. His name is in the Quran more often than Muhammad. How many of you guys knew that? Every religion believes in Jesus. But they believe in Jesus, who is a man but not God. Uh, they believe in a Jesus who is the brother of Satan and one of many gods. They believe in Jesus, who is a great teacher, but not God in the flesh. And we have many in our culture have a Jesus of their own making. They decide what their own sense of who Jesus should be. I was thinking about Mel Gibson's um, The Passion of the Christ. I enjoyed watching that movie because it's a reminder of what Jesus went through physically. But can I tell you some of the things that I noticed? First of all, he got the Romans all wrong. They were a bunch of scared little sissies. Um, so forget about the Romans in The Passion of the Christ. Think about the Romans of Gladiator. Those were the real Romans. But this is the other thing I noticed. You know, Jesus is on the way to the cross, and he's discouraged, and he's weak, and he feels like giving up. And then he looks at Mary, his mother, and he draws strength to be able to continue on. Any of you guys notice that? I just want you to know, Jesus wasn't looking to Mary for help. Mary was looking to Jesus for help. And we have whole belief systems that, that, are, that revolve around Jesus is hard. He doesn't care about you, but Mary loves you. She's soft-hearted. Ask her. She'll talk to Jesus for you. That is so wrong. We have belief systems that, that see Jesus as he needs help. Let's pray to saints. Let's ask these other people to help because Jesus can't do it all. No, Jesus is powerful. Think about Jesus on his way to the cross, actually hanging on the cross. Who is Jesus and what did Jesus do? He said to John, take care of my mother. Mary wasn't taking care of Jesus. Jesus was taking care of Mary while he hung on the cross. Jesus is dying for the sins of mankind, and he saves the thief on the cross next to him. As Jesus is dying, he's praying for the forgiveness of the people who are putting him to death. We need to follow the Jesus described in Scripture. We need to be like Jesus, not making up a Jesus of our own, but taking Jesus as he presents himself in Scripture. Now, Matthew chap or John chapter 5, verse 39, Jesus talks to the Pharisees, and this is what he says. He says, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is they that bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. So here's the point. I want to leave with this. A lot of times people read the Bible, and I think it's amazing that we have the actual words of Jesus recorded in the gospel, the red letters. I like red letter Bibles. But I do want to make this point, as much as I love and appreciate that, did you know that those red letters are not more important than any of the black ones? When Jesus is looking at the Pharisees, he says, you study the scriptures. By the way, was not talking about any of the red letters. And he says, because you think that you have the, in them eternal life, but it is these that testify about me. So everything in scripture testifies about Jesus. You know, Jesus didn't just write the red letters. Jesus wrote every single word in the Old and the New Testament because it's all inspired. 
And so we see Jesus everywhere. It is all of Scripture. And while it is special for me to read Jesus' very sermons, there's not a word in Scripture that's not inspired, that's not important, that doesn't point us to Christ, that's of any less value than any other word in Scripture. And there's a lot of people who think, oh, people will love Jesus even though they reject the Old Testament. I don't know if you've ever heard anybody say anything like that, but I just want to tell you, Jesus says in Matthew 10, whoever receives you receives me. Whoever who receives him, um, whoever receives me receives him who sent me. So if you receive Jesus, you receive God. If you receive Jesus of the Gospels, you receive the God of the whole Bible. John 5.23 says, whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. You can't accept Jesus without accepting God, and you can't accept God without accepting Jesus. They go together. Jesus allows no division. And so as we look at Scripture, as we think about the study of Matthew, I'm excited about it. I'm looking forward to it. Uh, This book was written 2,000 years ago, but the message is timeless, and we need it as much today as it's ever been been needed. So Matthew's inspired It's written by a faithful person, and you and I want to be like Jesus. So I'm excited about studying Matthew, and this is my final word, and we'll pray. But you could be praying for me because I want to go as fast as possible through the book of Matthew. I want to take it in big chunks. I don't want us to miss the flow, but occasionally we're going to slow down because I don't want to miss anything, and we're going to zoom in on certain important things. But be praying for me as I work out all those details. I am looking forward to studying and becoming more like Jesus. Let me pray. Lord, thank you for giving us your word. Thank you that we can trust everything that's written, that we can disregard the critics when it comes to things that they say that are untrue. Lord, I just pray that you would help us as a church, that you would help me to become more like you, that in a, that in a fresh, meaningful, new way, I would see you, I would be challenged, I would be inspired Lord, help us to reflect you to a lost and dying world. Lord, help us to love you, to know that you are the God whose yoke is easy and whose burden is light. And Lord, that we would come to you when we are weak and heavy laden and find rest for our souls. And God, I pray that we would be a people that communicate that same love, that welcome others, that introduce people to you, that are soft-hearted toward others in your name. Amen.